If there are words to describe the character of Satan, words you could choose from would be words like corrupt, deviant, perhaps sinister, evil, certainly proud. One word that will strike you in what we're launching here as a new series as we continue in this book of Revelation is the word relentless. If you were to choose a symbol that describes Satan, you could choose from a number of them. Crafty serpent, a deceiving angel of light, or maybe a roaring lion on the hunt for fresh victims. Or a lesser known symbol that will appear in the verses we'll study, that of a a red dragon. A relentless red dragon. If you were to describe in one word the desire of this red dragon that seems to drive every other emotion and, and passion of this fallen, corrupted being, you could easily choose one word, hatred. And most especially, hatred for the Jewish people. It's more than a hatred, though, of the Jew. It's a hatred of their election as an ethnic nation of God. They're known as God's chosen people, right? And Satan hates the covenant established by God with Israel. He hates the thought of a coming kingdom and a coming king, this God-man who will one day sit on David's throne. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the greatest proofs to me that a dispensational interpretation of prophecy is correct. And what I mean by that is we simply take the words at face value, interpreting them literally, and those promises given to Israel as literally coming true in the future, is the ongoing persecution of the Jew. Listen, if the church simply absorbed the promises to Israel, And they're just null and void now for the nation. If the covenant promises to Israel of a land and a a nation and a throne don't matter anymore now that the church is here. If the church kind of voided the future of ethnic Israel in the land of promise. Then why is there to this day an ongoing hatred and persecution of the Jew which can only be explained in the language of a demonic agenda? Why the long historical attempts on every continent to wipe out the Jew? Why are the pages of history filled with atrocities against the Jewish people? All you have to do is review your history. I'll review it briefly with you. In the second century, Jews in Egypt and Mesopotamia... They were sold into slavery at such a large number that the price of an able-bodied slave was driven down to the price of a horse. The Crusades, which would begin in the 11th century, would slaughter hundreds of thousands of Jews. In fact, a thousand years ago, Jews were banished from England. In France and Germany, they were blamed for the black plague and treated viciously. You say, well, that was the 13th century. That was long ago. That's ancient history. Well, in the same year that Columbus sailed the ocean blue, you remember that? You're supposed to have learned that. Remember that? That year, Spain was driving the Jews out of their country. So, well, you know, that's the unsophisticated 15th century. People thought the Jews were animals, but they also thought the earth was flat. So we just have to give them a break. I read only this past week 
in the great upheaval by Jay Winnick, a history of 1788 to 1800, fascinating history about France and the upheaval of that nation as the revolution spilled blood, as they overturned the feudal system and the monarchy went into the hands of the people. It was interesting to me to learn that Thomas Jefferson was already there. He was sort of the foreign hero taking the place of an aging Benjamin Franklin. The National Assembly, now that the power was slipping from the monarchy into the hands of the people, asked Thomas Jefferson to help them write their own Declaration of Independence, to which he agreed. He had already been mentoring Lafayette behind closed doors, and so they together worked on the preamble, which will sound very similar to ours, although they don't mention a creator, interestingly enough. The first article simply declares that all men are born and remain free and equal in rights. Sounds like we're off to a good start. However, if you burrow your way into that original French constitution, you you soon discover that civil rights were denied to three specific categories of people. Actors. I'm not really sure why, but (laughs) tough time to be an actor. Protestants. And Jews. Now, as I thought about that, it occurred to me that an actor, well, you could change your profession, your occupation. A Protestant could leave that system of belief, but a Jew couldn't change anything. And so, as a result, the great revolution of France left one race of people without the protection of the Constitution, much like our own country refused to protect the African race. You say, but that was the 1780s. That's also ancient history. Surely things would change for that race of people after centuries of persecution. Well, about 130 years after the French ratified that new constitution, a young man stood in the Hofburg Library in Vienna, standing as he often did in front of a casement in which was a spear that many believe was the spear that was thrust into the side of Jesus Christ. And there are a lot of silly relics then and still to this day. But people believed it. And this young man hated Jesus Christ. He hated the Jews. And in his early 20s, he he had overheard a tour guide of that library say this to a group he was guiding. I quote, this spear is shrouded in mystery and whoever unlocks its secrets could rule the world. That young man would later write, those words changed my life. Standing before that spear, this young man made a pact with Satan, inviting the the mystical powers, if there were any, of that spear to invade his own heart and life. In fact, one of his friends by the name of Walter Stein, who befriended this young Adolf Hitler, wrote this as Hitler would stand before that spear. And I quote Stein, he stood like a man in a trance. The very space around him seemed enlivened with some kind of strange light. He appeared transformed as if some mighty spirit inhabited his very soul, creating within and around him an evil transformation, end quote. I found it interesting to learn that when Hitler victoriously marched through Vienna, he went immediately into the Hofburg library and he took that spear out of that casement and held it. And he said, and I quote, I now hold the world in my hands. So he hated Christ. And demonically inspired, no doubt, and empowered, this one would march through much of Europe triumphant in victory with millions raising their hands saying, Heil Hitler or Hail Hitler as they did the emperors before him in the Roman Empire. While at the same time, millions of Jews were being burned to death in ovens deep inside concentration camps. And you say, yeah, but Stephen, that's the mid-1900s. That also is ancient history. 
The world knows better now. Oh no, you see the same hatred for Christ and, and the Jew. It's not gone away for the devil has not retired from his primary passion. Even though at this moment he lacks a global crusader, he is still luring those into his, into his uh, crusade of hatred. He's still organizing. He's, he's still fomenting it. In fact, I read an article in the New York Times reported a number of years ago of the popularity of video games in Germany and Austria. More than 100 different video games categorized simply as KZ Manager. KZ is German shorthand for concentration camp. These games allow a player to to run a concentration camp complete with a castle topped by a swastika. The player manages the camp and earns points for gassing prisoners, selling gold fillings, which he needs to do in order to buy more gas to operate the gas chambers, all of which, this article said, must be done, by the way, without raising the awareness of people outside the camp. The Jewish watchdog organization called the Weisenthal Center, you can go to the website and read all about it, reported the popularity of the games among European youths. In fact, they pulled one particular city in Austria and found that 61% of the high school students either knew about the games or had played them. You say, well, okay, that was, that was 17 years ago. It was. Satan is tired, and people are tolerant now of all religions and races, and this has been going on for centuries, and so now, you know, he's given it up. Not quite. A CNN a report announced in bold headlines that caught my eye, anti-Semitism on the rise globally. It went on to report current anti-Jewish incidents which have been documented in 2008 in Argentina, Australia, Canada, South Africa, Russia, France, Germany, England, and of course in the Middle East where it is increasing in volatility. Ladies and gentlemen, listen, one of the greatest proofs that God is not finished with ethnic Israel is that the devil will not leave them alone. One of Satan's premier passions is the extermination of the Jew. And Satan will try to destroy the the Jew long after the church has been established, in fact, even after the church is raptured. Why? Because Satan also interprets prophecy literally. He takes it at face value. I hate to say it, but the devil's a dispensationalist. Don't quote that to my covenant friends. It's true. He understands that that this is a literal promise and he understands that God will literally fulfill it. So if he can somehow keep God from keeping his covenant promise of a coming land and a coming kingdom and a coming king from happening, then he has made God less than God. He has made God a liar. For God would have then promised something he could not produce. Furthermore, Satan fully understands the ramifications of this book of Revelation we're studying. If 144,000 Jewish evangelists are really going to comb the earth and find converts among the millions from every tongue, tribe, and nation who will believe in Christ, then he must even now try to stamp out the Jew so that can't happen in the future. If Israel will one day be called back to Jerusalem, and I believe that calling is not now, that calling is in the tribulation. If he sees that coming true, then he's going to do everything he can even now to keep Jerusalem out of the hands of the Jews. He will attempt to thwart the plans of Christ and he will attempt to kill the Jews until Christ banishes him to hell forever. In fact, after the millennial kingdom, Satan's let loose for a little while and what does he do? He immediately races to bring war and death and destruction to Israel. You let him loose and that's where he goes. So his hatred of the Jew and of Christ, the Jewish Messiah, 
is so entrenched in his corrupted and fallen nature. That's the reason, ladies and gentlemen, behind the headlines. The red dragon is the reason that the pages of history are stained with the blood of Jews who have been killed and in their warring and fighting, they've certainly killed others. Not just the red dragon will be involved in this final crusade, this horrific crusade against this uh, people. We're about to be introduced to the Antichrist and his false prophet. In fact, if you have your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapters 12 and 13 are primarily devoted to introducing to us the key players. And I'm just going to call this series the, the many faces of evil as we continue toward the final days of the tribulation and the battle of Armageddon. You got this new global killer, which is about to make his appearance in the text of Scripture. Before we're introduced to him, however, John has several introductions to make. So let's begin with Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. You ought to circle the word sign, it'll appear again, that word. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. And the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. Now the wonderful thing about approaching prophecy, literally, is that you're able to literally interpret every metaphor, every symbol, as symbols and metaphors. And this text indicates this is a clear symbol. It's a sign. The Greek language calls it a, a semion mega, a, a major, a, a big sign, a great sign, which immediately tells us then that this woman is not an actual woman, but that she symbolically represents something else. So keep that in mind. John writes, a great sign appeared in heaven. And in this symbolic vision, John sees her clothed with the sun, the moon at her feet, wearing a crown of stars. Now, she's not the first symbolic woman to appear in Revelation. In chapter 2, we've already met a woman symbolically named Jezebel because she was leading the church into immorality and, and sin. In chapter 17, we're going to be introduced to a harlot uh, who will represent the false religion of the Antichrist. In chapter 19, we're going to see another woman who symbolizes the bride of Christ. She's simply referred to as the bride of the Lamb. That's you and me. Here in chapter 12... We see another symbolic woman, this one in the pain of childbirth, and she's dressed very differently than your wife was when she went into the delivery room to deliver your baby, right? No crown, stars, and moon in there. They are here. So then the question is, what does this, or who does this woman represent? Now, in my research, I found at least five different opinions. I'll give you the four wrong views and then the correct view. You don't have to believe me. You can choose to be wrong. <laughs> then you're going to get a bad grade on the final exam, okay? The first is Mary Baker Eddy. Mary Baker Eddy believed with all humility that she was this woman and that she bore the Christian science movement into being in 1879. Of course, tragically, she knows now she wasn't the woman. The Roman Catholic Church believes the woman is Mary and they often referred to as the Queen of Heaven. Certainly Mary was the mother of Christ. They would view her here in this text as ascended. 
without having died, making her virtually uh, deified and equal with Christ. More specifically, as it relates to this text, you have then a problem, a major problem. Mary is already ascended, so to speak. She is crowned in heaven, but she's still carrying Jesus. So that, among others, presents difficulty. A third view holds that the woman represents God himself. This leaves unexplained then why God would have to run from the dragon, as we'll see later in this text. So I don't believe it's God. A fourth view is that the woman is the church. Though the church is certainly represented as a woman, the bride of Christ, keep in mind that she is the bride of Christ, not the woman giving birth to Christ. The church did not give birth to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gave birth to the church. The view that fits the context, in my opinion, of this chapter as well as the rest of Scripture is that this woman represents Israel. Uh, This woman symbolizes Israel uh, well on all points, certainly because Christ was born of the seed of Israel. The God-man was of Jewish kin. In fact, the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah refer to Israel as a woman in labor. So it's not an unusual symbol for Israel. And Israel was certainly suffering under the heel of Rome when Christ was born. In fact, the story of the incarnation is the story of of, uh, difficult times, intrigue, poverty. You have the birth of the Messiah in a stable laid in a trough, surrounded by smelly animals, manure. You have, in addition to that, Satan, who's there ready, trying to wipe out the Messiah, just as we'll see him pictured, ready to devour the child if he could. It's one of the underlying dramas of what we call the Christmas story. The anguish of Israel will be heard as Herod has all the Jewish boys under the age of two slaughtered in his attempt to put away, to kill this one born king of the Jews. Matthew 2.16. He was born when Israel was and still is in great travail. You'll notice again in verse 1 that her symbolic appearance can be tied to Israel as well. In fact, there is only one other place in Scripture where these symbols are clustered together in one place, sun, moon, and stars. And that's in Joseph's dream in Genesis chapter 37, where he describes to his father, his mother, and his brothers that they're all going to bow down to him. There you have the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars representing the nation Israel. If you parallel the symbols in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, in that dream, and the, and the last book of the Bible, Revelation and John's vision, you have Israel then clothed with the sun, an allusion in Genesis 37 to Jacob, who is the inheritor of the Abrahamic covenant promises. You have the moon representing his wife, Rachel, Jacob's wife and mother of Joseph. And then you have the 12 Stars representing the 12 tribes who discarded Joseph, thrown in a pit, who ascended, so to speak, and they all bowed to him. A wonderful illustration of our own Lord. Now you get into the introduction following this of what we'll simply call the first face of evil. Notice who's lurking about in in verse 3 of Revelation chapter 12. Then another sign, you could underline or circle that word and connect it with the other, Another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns 
And on his head were seven diadems, or crowns, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour the child. And this is where you're thinking, okay, this sounds more like a monster movie than anything else. This is where you stop and you go back to Philippians or Psalms and you pick up there where you left off. This is why we stay away from Revelation. We got horns and, 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 and multi-headed dragons waiting to eat babies. Well, before anybody thinks this is pure fiction, or worse yet, you take from this text what our world has taken, and that is the devil wears a red suit, has a long tail and, and, and horns. Uh, understand this is a samion. This is another sign. This is a, a symbolic scene that represents an invisible drama. In fact, this sign by John does not tell us what Satan Looks like it's telling us what Satan acts like. He acts like a destructive, terrible dragon who wants to eat, consume, kill the Messiah and the seed of this one, as we'll learn later in the chapter, the Jewish people. So let me give you four descriptions that come out of this particular sign given to us by John about Satan himself. First, Satan is seen as a destroyer. He's referred to here as a red dragon, a red beast that kills and maims his victims. Only in the book of Revelation is Satan viewed as a, or referred to as a dragon. Well, how do we know for sure that this dragon is Satan? Well, if you look over at verse 9 of the same chapter, you discover very clearly uh, John telling us uh, there that the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil, and Satan. So there's no question about it. In fact, he goes on in that verse to say he deceives the whole world and he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now he's described back in verse 3 with the color red. The red dragon. There's nothing wrong with the color red. All those wearing red, you don't have to slide into your seat. It's It's a reference to war. In Revelation. In fact, we've encountered the only other use of puras or red that showed up back in chapter 6, where a horseman comes riding out on a red horse and brings war to the planet. So, this is a reference to the destructive beast who will destroy all who attempt to oppose him. Secondly, Satan is seen in this text as a dictator. Now, look again at verse 3. Behold, Here's this sign, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Now let's just break this down one at a time and it'll make sense to you. The seven heads of Satan simply refer to the seven consecutive world empires that we've observed in history. We've seen six of them, not the seventh. It all begins with Egypt, and then Assyria, and then Babylon, and then Babylon's conquered by the Medo-Persians, and then Greece uh, conquers and rules the, the known world, and then Rome conquers uh, Greece and rules the Western world. The final seventh kingdom, Revelation will inform us, will be the kingdom ruled by the Antichrist, or literally this dragon. And that kingdom will be made up with ten horns. Now Daniel helps us immensely here because he tells us that a horn is a king. These are ten kings. 
So what you have here from Daniel chapter 7, coordinated with Revelation chapter 12, is you have a a 10-king or 10-nation confederacy under the sway of the dragon in this final or seventh world empire. So Satan is pictured here as a destroyer of all who oppose him, as a dictator of a new confederation of 10 nations, and this coalition of nations will be ruled by the satanically empowered Antichrist. Then you have next Satan pictured as a deceiver. Notice verse 4 again. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Now we know that when Satan fell after attempting to wrestle away from God his throne, Isaiah and Ezekiel inform us that when he fell, angels fell with him. Angels having been deceived by Satan into believing that he could somehow conquer God and the throne of heaven. John tells us here in this text, in chapter 12, that Satan was able to deceive one-third of the angelic hosts, and these angels followed him, believing he would succeed. In fact, since that time, they and Satan have been confirmed in their unholy state, and they await their sentence in an eternal hell. Now, we're never told how many angels God created, so we don't know how many a third is. Okay? We are told, however, in Revelation chapter 9, that at least 200 million demons terrorize the planet for a space of time. And in fact, we're given the impression that that's not all there is. So imagine then you have two to 300 million demons representing perhaps only one third of the angelic host created by God, which means we're pressing, if you're keeping the math with me, we've got about a billion angels created and they were created job 38 verse 7 said before the universe was created and they all in unity sang together until a third of them followed this one lucifer who attempted to seize the throne of god and they were all cast down that is they fell and here they remain attempting to thwart the purposes of of christ we have no idea frankly how many demons There are. But we do know this. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Even if the evil one and his horde of demons are vicious destroyers and and representing him as a world dictator and they are persuasive in their deception. In fact, Satan will be further described in John's vision as a devourer of the seed of Israel. I want you to notice again the graphic picture of Satan's all-consuming desire. Go back to verse 4 in the the dragon middle part. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. In other words, he he is waiting. He, He knows the prophecies will come true. That from Israel, from the womb of Israel, will come a Jewish Messiah. And so he's on the lookout. He's watching and he's waiting, as it were, like a dragon crouched with eyes glaring, waiting for that boy to be delivered. So 
Herod would be nothing more than a, than a pawn in the talons of this dragon as he sends soldiers racing to Bethlehem to slaughter the Jewish boys two years of, of age and under. Notice what happens, however, as the male child is delivered. Verse 5, the text tells us, and she gave birth to a son, a male. You might think that's redundant, but a A male son is simply an expression of one who is heir to the throne. He goes on, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, clearly the Messiah. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now what you have in John's vision here is something he's done often and he'll do again. He gives you two events that are separated by a distance of time as if they happened together. So he talks about the birth and then he talks about the ascension. Going back to the Father. It leaves all the middle details out for us, but he gives them to us, by the way, in his gospel called the Gospel of John. Go there and get those pieces and fill in the details. Now, of course, the dragon who fails to corrupt this seed, this boy, who fails to cause him to sin when he tempts him, who fails to succeed when he attempts to incite those to kill him for he rises uh, from the dead and ascends to the Father... The text of scripture here in this chapter, in fact, in verse 13, even further, will tell us that he then takes the focus of his anger and his hatred and he focuses on the people, the seed. He wages war against the woman who bore the child. In other words, he couldn't kill the Jewish Messiah and so he will vent his hatred and he still does to this day against the Jewish people. To try to keep all the other promises about the second coming of Christ from coming true. And so we have world news today informing us of his ongoing hatred and anti-Semitism which is growing even now. So you can hear the president of Iran talking about his desire to exterminate the Jews from the planet. And push her into the sea. And countries around our world are registering anti-Jewish sentiment and ridicule. The Muslim world today is probably personifying uh, more than anything else the murderer's hatred against her, so bent on killing Jews that they will sacrifice their own sons and daughters to kill a handful of them. One commentator quoted from an article first published in Harper's Magazine where a Muslim mother was interviewed after she learned of her son's death in a suicide bombing that killed her son and ten Jews. And she said, and I quote, Because I love my son, I encouraged him to die a martyr's death for the sake of Allah. Jihad is a religious obligation encumbered upon us, and we must carry it out. So I sacrificed my son as a part of my obligation. I asked Allah to give me ten Israelis for my son, and Allah granted my request. Our God honored him even more in that there were many Israelis wounded. How tragic is that? How utterly tragic. Islam is a religion where its sons are called on to die for their God. Listen, Christianity is a religion where God sent his son to die for us. Muslim extremists are sacrificing their lives so that others will die. We as believers living in this world should sacrifice our lives so that others can live. And by the way, these are great days to be alive. You know, I I tire of people talking about the post-Christian world. I don't even like that term. I like to think of it as pre-Christian. We're at the the edge of some wonderful things. 
This is pre-Christian. Now that means you've got to start at the beginning. Because now when you talk to people on the street about God, they're going to say, which one? So you start, out, you start out introducing them to the unknown God, which Paul did in Athens, because they don't know who he is. And you talk about the scriptures and they'll say, which ones? And you introduce them to these. We live in pre-Christian days and a great harvest awaits. Casper Ten Boom, the godly father of Corey that many of you have read about and heard about, she survived the concentration camp. Her father didn't, but she and her family uh, hid away Jews during the days of the Gestapo and World War II, and they had a, a chamber built up upstairs with a fake brick wall that looked like it was the exterior wall of their house. It really wasn't, and through the linen closet, Jews could, could scurry, and then back in there, they could be kept safely. When the house was inspected, I've had the privilege of walking up there and looking at that chamber and that little bedroom. When they were finally caught and the entire family sent away, before being separated, Casper Ten Boom, who would not survive, said, If I die in prison, it will be an honor to have sacrificed my life so that God's people could live. Let me add Muslims are not our enemies. They're our mission field. In fact, so are Jews. Don't overlook that fact. Jews are our mission field as well. For Jew living in this age of grace, they must come to faith in Jesus Christ as well as their personal Messiah if they ever hope to inherit the kingdom of God. Go back to Nicodemus, a Jewish leader who came to Jesus secretly so nobody would see him coming. And he said to Jesus, thinking he was in the kingdom because he belonged to Abraham. He had Jewish blood flowing through his veins, and he had questions. And Jesus said to him, look, you need to understand, unless one is born again, he cannot see or enter the kingdom of heaven, John 3, 3. And so Nicodemus said, well, what do I have to do then? I mean, how do you you get born again? How can you be born again? And Jesus said, well, let me break it down to you very simply. Here's how it happens. And he said in that same chapter, for God so loved the world, say it with me. That he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There are not two plans of salvation. There's not one plan for the Gentiles and one for the Jews. All must come to faith in Jesus Christ. And what a wonderful thing it was. A little Jewish lady come up and give me a hug who'd come to faith in Christ here at this church and say, this meant so much to me. I'm a Jew who has accepted by faith. Christ. Let's go back to verse 6 and wrap it up here. It says the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God. I want you to note that phrase in your mind. Prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days, which just so happens to be three and a half years. It's wonderful how all the pieces come together if you just take it to face value. They had three and a half years of relative peace. The temple was built. The Antichrist was their friend. At the middle point, he desecrated the temple, and they went running. In fact, Jesus predicted earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Woe to you if you're ready to deliver a child when this happens. You're going to need to run. And run they will. Many believe Israel will flee to Petra. A city cut into the mountain, a rock where God will protect and provide for them. We'll look more closely at that in our next session. 
together. But what I want you to notice in this one, before we wrap it up, is that phrase I just read in the middle of verse 6, a place prepared to a place prepared by God. Sound familiar? The only other time in the New Testament that phrase appears, that construct, is in John 14, where the disciples are troubled. Jesus has said to them, look, I'm going to go away. I'm going back to my Father. And they're saying, how can we go with you? And he says, don't worry, I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you and take you to where I am, to a place prepared for you. John 14, verse 3. A place where we will be as well protected and provided for supernaturally. In fact, where we will spend eternity. Listen, if we can draw any analogy from the chosen nation of Israel to the chosen bride of Christ today, it would be this. Just as God has kept every promise and will keep every promise to Israel, he will keep every promise to you and to me. Jesus Christ promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5. That's for today. He promised, my grace is sufficient for you. You may not feel like it. You may not want more, but the deposit of grace for today is sufficient. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And he gave that ultimate wonderful promise to those who believe in him. He said, I will come again and I will receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. John 14, 3. These are his promises to you. Count on them. Mark them down. Lean on them. Wherever you are right now, you may need one of those promises. Lean on them heavily. Rest in them. Hang on to them. You may be right now in for the ride of your life. You hang on. His promises are true. His unchanging promises to them and to us. And he will never fail to keep his word. Amen? Let's sing praise to him as we close. Praise God from